We're going to focus on that passage from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16 this morning. So if you want to turn there in your Bible, I encourage you to do that. It's uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. And in our New Testament passage this morning, St. Paul, the Apostle Paul, is writing to the church in the city of Corinth. And maybe you know a little bit about Corinth, but if you don't, I will remind you that the Corinth that Paul knew in the year 49 AD was a prosperous port city and a commercial center. It was a Roman colony city, a Roman colony city. And that means that retired members of the Roman legions, the Roman military, and former slaves could start a brand new life in a colony city and they could pursue social and economic improvement. So there was an entrepreneurial attitude that permeated the city of Corinth. Uh, the Corinthian church was deeply impressed, deeply impressed with philosophical wisdom. They were enamored with academic and intellectual credentials. They cared about all the letters behind your name. Uh, they loved to be smart. They loved to be thought of as being smart. And they loved things that looked successful and impressive. In many ways, they had some of the same attitudes and values that underpin our current American civilization today. And as such, those points of connection mean that the church in Corinth provides a penetrating glimpse into our own lives as 21st, 21st century Christians living in America. So Paul is writing this particular letter to deal with questions and reports of problems among the Corinthian believers. And to deal with those problems, the problems in that church, Paul lays his foundation, and here's what I'm laying our foundation this morning on, he lays his foundation on the message of the cross. Paul does this because the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified is the core. It's the very center of the Christian faith. All of the problems of the church in Corinth have their origin in that they have lost sight of this and that they have become ashamed of the message of the cross. Because the cross does not look like, and I know this one's beautiful and it's Celtic, you know, it's brass and shiny. But when you look at the old rugged cross, it does not look like success. It doesn't look smart or impressive or shiny. It looks like abject, total failure. But Paul says to the Corinthians and to us that the only way that we can know the truth about God and thus the truth about all the reality, including ourselves, is by looking at the cross. Paul is saying in this passage, the cross Jesus crucified is what God is like. The cross is what God is like. And that's where we pick up Paul's letter to the Corinthians today. Throughout this letter, Paul is trying to do a couple of things. He wants to challenge and deconstruct the Corinthians' understanding of wisdom. They're all about wisdom. Because their view of wisdom, of what it means to be smart 
and accomplished is based on a paradigm that is worldly and is essentially hostile and rebellion against God. It is hostile and in rebellion against God. And it is the very crucifying of the Lord of glory himself, Jesus Christ, that the rulers of this age, through that crucifixion, reveal that they're, please, please let's unpack this sentence a little bit, they're autonomous. In other words, all by myself. They're autonomous. Human wisdom is hostile to God and to God's purposes because in human wisdom, we killed the Lord of glory. That's where human wisdom got us. And the second thing that Paul is doing here is he is reconstructing the Corinthian church's understanding of what real wisdom looks like and where real wisdom comes from. And by the way, brothers and sisters, this is not some theoretical or inconsequential topic. Instead, this discussion of true wisdom will affect every single one of us in this room for eternity. What Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 will affect all of us here for eternity. So in verse 1 of chapter 2, Paul indicates that he intentionally chose not to approach the Corinthians in terms of worldly wisdom, the kind of wisdom they were accustomed to. He did not let the cultural expectations of Greek or Jewish society determine the content or the tone. Paul has a tone. I've been told I have a tone the content or tone of his message. He was not going to play the power and prestige game of which philosopher is the smartest. Instead, this is what Paul says. Listen to this, and if you're following along, it's verse 1, 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech lofty speech or wisdom. In fact, Paul says, verse 2, he says, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. The core of the message is the person, Jesus Christ. That's the core and the event of his crucifixion. The message of the gospel is about a person. Listen to me. Uh, the message of the gospel is about a person and what that person did. Yes, Jesus' teachings are vitally important. We really don't know how to flesh out the Christian life without them. But it is the actions of Jesus that are at the core of the gospel. So if you think Jesus is a great teacher, that's wonderful. I am so happy to hear that. But Jesus' ethical teachings are not the gospel. Christianity is not about following a philosophy, but by, about receiving and following a person and what he has accomplished through the cross. And that's good news. Because you can be a child and do that. You don't have to be a philosopher. You can be a child and do that. So when Thomas Jefferson took a pair of scissors to the New Testament to cut out, to excise all of that supernatural stuff, 
leaving only the teachings of Jesus that comported with Jefferson's own personal version of reason, what was left behind was not the gospel. That was not the gospel. The church in Corinth was in danger of surrendering the message of the cross for a false gospel that focused not on the crucified Lord Jesus, but on human accomplishments and the ability to impress. And there is always in every culture pressure, pressure to abandon the core message of the cross. Someone has said that the gospel came to the Greeks and the Greeks turned it into a philosophy. The gospel came to the Romans and the Romans turned it into a system. The gospel came to the Europeans and the Europeans turned it into a culture. The gospel came to the Americans and the Americans turned it into a business. Perhaps the most powerful false gospel for us as American followers of Jesus is the gospel of consumerism. This is the assumption, listen, this is a false gospel. This is the assumption that the church exists to, to meet my felt needs. The church exists to meet my felt needs. Now, I'm going to be hyperbolic and fair, uh, like, a, like a rabbi here. So, but here's what I have to say about that. Damn our felt needs. Because our passions deceive us. We need a savior. Who speaks to what our genuine need is. That we are proud, rebellious sinners. Who would choose death over life. God save me from my, my felt needs. In consumerist Christianity, Jesus is a commodity to be acquired in order to make me happy. This is most often revealed through a gospel of therapy and technique. Instead of being the apocalyptic, earth-shattering testimony of God's destruction of the powers of sin and death and hell and God's beginning, instigation, inauguration of a new creation through the death and resurrection of Christ, Christianity is, is reduced to a therapeutic program. It should fix me, fix my marriage, fix my kids, Fix my sex life, fix my finances, etc. This is accomplished in this false gospel through providing the religious consumer with techniques. And you will, you'll see this. It, they tend to show up in enum, what I call enumerated sermons. All right? So if you see a sermon with the title of something like Five Ways to Grow Better Kids. Five ways to a happier marriage, that's technique. I want, I want better kids. I want a happier marriage. But that's not the gospel. The crucified one does not offer us technique. 
and doesn't offer us that kind of therapy. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ bids us to follow him, he bids us come and die. We die in this to ourselves so that he can raise us to new life and make us new creations. If any man be in Christ, the old is gone. Behold, all things are made new. We are new creations. He is a new creation. I love that hymn, Crown Him with Many Crowns, or as it showed up on the overhead uh, projection, the, the uh, PPT, PowerPoint, or whatever this is now, whatever, whatever iteration of technology we are on now, you know on the jails that you put the overhead on. No. It showed up. And in our, uh, early on in Christ Church, Chuck's laughing because he remembers this, is not crown him with many crowns, but clown him with many clowns. <laughs> Please don't do that. Don't clown him. But I love that verse in that hymn, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Okay, crown him the Lord of love. Behold his hands and side. Rich wounds, yet visible above. In beauty glorified, no angel in the sky can fully bear that sight, but downward bends his burning eye at mysteries so bright. The mystery that in glory now Christ retains the wounds of his crucifixion. Even after the resurrection, even after the glorious ascension, Jesus gives us no other way to know him other than being the crucified one. Richard B. Hayes says this. He says that word crucified in verse 2, I just read to you, you know, I determined, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says that word in 1 Corinthians 2 is a perfect passive participle. All right. All right, you grammar people. You, that just made your day. In the Greek, the perfect, perfect tense describes actions completed in the past whose effects continue into the present. So when Paul summarizes the content of the gospel as Christ crucified, he is identifying Jesus Christ as the one whose identity remains stamped by the cross. The cross has not been canceled out by the resurrection. Rather, to know even the risen Jesus is to know him precisely as the crucified one. Any other account of his identity is not the gospel. Christ remains the crucified one even as he reigns over the cosmos. Now, Paul's method of conveying this wisdom of the cross is startling. He says it in verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul's means of proclaiming the cross looks like the cross. The method is the message. Weakness, fear, and trembling. There is no confident strutting associated with those rhetorical superstars that the Corinthians were so impressed with. No, the method matches the message. The method and the message of the cross revealed that God's strength, hear me, God's strength is made manifest 
through our weakness. Paul himself clearly articulates that in another letter to the Corinthians. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7 and following, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. I'm glad that's in the list. For when I am weak, when I am weak, then I'm strong. I'm such a hard-headed Christian. I have to be taught this over and over and over again. I'm glad you're better than me. <laughs> even as Christ, this is Marva Dawn, she says, even as Christ accomplished atonement for us by suffering and death, so the Lord accomplishes witness to the world through our weakness. In fact, God has more need of our weakness than of our strength. As the Psalms and Isaiah teach us, God's way is not to take us out of tribulations, but to comfort us in the midst of them and to exchange our strength in the face of them. By our union with Christ, in the power of the Spirit, in our weakness, we display God's glory. This gospel of weakness alone, this gospel of weakness alone is accompanied by the power of God. Paul says, verse 4, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. Paul's weak message was accompanied by the power of God in signs and wonders. I've seen it over and over again. I've, I don't ever get tired of telling the story of little Maddie Blake, who was born with a, um, with a, a tumor in her leg. It was a friable, crumbly tumor in her femur. I think it was her femur. And uh, she, was, uh, she was taken, this is as an infant, she, a newborn, they took her to the oncology department at Duke uh, University Hospital, at Duke Hospital, and um, you know there it was. The doctors looked at it and they said, uh, "This is there's no no cure for this. At some point, we will have to amputate and provide her with a prosthesis because she won't be able to walk on that. Her it will just snap." And uh, and so after the parents were devastated by that prognosis, uh, that was early on in her, like you know, just a week or two into her time here on planet Earth. She, uh, she was brought to church to be baptized. And so we <laughs> took that weak little baby and that broken-hearted mama and daddy, and uh, we baptized that baby, and we anointed her with oil, we chrismated her, marked her as a child of God, 
They took her back to Duke um, a couple of weeks later, did more radiology workups. Radiologist is, uh, is called in. They call in someone else to look at the pictures. The, the tumor is going away. It's not possible for that tumor to go away. It's being replaced by, by healthy bone material. And today, Maddie Blake is a concert pianist with two legs. She can play that pedal all she wants to. The greatest sign and wonder, though, is the power of the Holy Spirit to convict proud sinners of their need for a Savior. That's the greatest wonder. So what are the means of receiving and understanding this kind of wisdom from God? This wisdom is not available through natural means. Paul says in verse 14, we just heard it, the natural person, in other words, the unregenerate person, the person who has not been born again by water and the Holy Spirit, the natural person, the unsaved person, the person without Christ, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly. They're stupid to him. And he is not able to, he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. They're not able to understand them. They're spiritually discerned. Now, Paul said he wasn't going to use lofty language, but I'm going to for just a second. <laughs> there is an epistemological divide between those who accept and those who reject the gospel. What in the world does that mean? There is, there is a divide uh, between the ability to know, to understand between those who have received the gospel and those who have rejected the gospel. Those who accept Christ and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit at the new birth are empowered to understand, they're empowered to understand and embrace the truth of God revealed in the cross. Those who reject Christ see the cross as folly, and those who follow the crucified one as being fools, or nowadays much worse. Beloved follower of Jesus, do you not know that if you are faithful to the crucified one, you will be esteemed a fool? Isn't, is that not a part of your self-awareness? If it isn't, it needs to become a part of your self-awareness. Oh, beloved, proud sinner, do you not know that you deem what we do here this morning as foolishness precisely because you are perishing without God in the world? This looks like stupid stuff because you're perishing and you need a Savior. And because this wisdom, this ability to appreciate and embrace the message of the cross comes only as a gift of the Holy Spirit, then if, this is, if we can only get this wisdom as a gift from the Holy Spirit, there is absolutely no room in the Christian life for self-congratulation or for pride or for a sense of accomplishment that would lead us to elitism or a superiority complex. We know we didn't do it. You know what they say? 
if you ever see a turtle on a fence post, you know he didn't get there by himself. <laughs> we didn't get here by ourselves. We're all turtles on fence posts. You see, we can boast of our learning and achievements that we gain through human wisdom. That was the Corinthians' problem. Human knowledge puffs up. It's an ego trip. But to come to the cross means surrendering our achievements as our measure of self-worth and value. It means letting go of those, releasing them to Jesus. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. I'm so thankful for the cross. It's life because we so soon come to the end of our own resources. And from the cross flows unlimited rivers of refreshing. Now, don't think what Paul says about wisdom, the wisdom of the cross, is anti-intellectualism. It is not. Rather, it merely acknowledges that the human intellect was created to function in concert, not independently, but in concert with God's Holy Spirit. The human noose, that rational faculty, is brought to its its greatest abilities and, and highest Ability to understand the things of reality of God when it is united to the Holy Spirit. You cannot know God or the truth about God through your own human achievement or your own autonomous intellect. It only comes by the Spirit. God wants to exalt and glorify your intellect as you embrace the wisdom of the cross. So how do I get this kind of wisdom Well, we get it by repenting of our self-directed, self-rationalizing wisdom that keeps us away from God. Um, I have had the privilege to to, uh, be in the academy and to be around a lot of really intelligent people. And and you know what I found about people who, who don't know Christ and they're very intellectual? is that they just have a lot smarter reasons for rationalizing away their sin. They're just as lost as me without the cross. We repent of our self-directed, self-rationalizing wisdom. We nail our pride to the cross. C.S. Lewis spoke of having to kill his own pride and snobbery in order to be a follower of Jesus he said, my own experience is that when I first became a Christian, think about this, such a, you know, he's, a, he's an Oxford Don. <laughs> when I first became a Christian about 14 years ago, I thought I could go, I could do it on my own by retiring to my rooms and reading theology. And I wouldn't go to the churches and gospel halls. Uh, do they still have gospel halls there? I don't know. I disliked very much their hymns. This is Lewis. I disliked very much their hymns. Do you hear the snobbery? Which I consider to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. 
But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I came up against different people of quite different outlooks and different education, and then gradually my conceit just began peeling off. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew, and then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. I know a humble brother right now who grinds stumps for a living. He lives with his arms around the cross, and he has more saintliness in his little finger than all the preening, angsty, self-congratulatory theologues at a certain prestigious seminary that will remain nameless. Now, I want to speak to you, Christian. If you are a born-again child of God, throughout your life, please listen. Just when you begin to trust in your own competence, God, in his severe mercy, will remind you of the cross. God will reacquaint you with weakness and dependence. God will shatter your illusion of self-reliance. And he will do it because he loves you. He loves you. And wants to remind you that you only have real life when you are clinging to your crucified Savior. That alone is the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.